All right. So Joshua chapter 5 through 8 is where we're going to be this evening. And we are um, handed out brochures on your way in. If you're listening on the radio or watching um, uh, on the live stream and you would like to get your hands on this, or if you're listening to this actually even later in a recorded message, you can go to our website, cclbird.com. And if you go under sermons and go th- uh, to the pull-down menu, you'll see something called Through the Bible. If you click on that, you'll see every book of the Bible. And as you find the book of Joshua or any other book, you'll see a brochure and um, a single teaching, by the way, of each book of the Bible in one night. So if you are unable to have that in your hands, you can at least access it that way. So as we are moving into uh, chapter 5, we're going to see a high moment of victory as Joshua is, encounters the Lord in what is a, uh, a, a pre-incarnate visitation of our Lord and Savior. Um, he's going to meet with him, and um, he is going to experience him. And then we're going to see that he is going to be given a battle plan for how to go and make the first attempt at taking the land, the conquest. The year is 1406 B.C. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is the time in which the conquest happened. It's not 1250 B.C. Um, And there are profound ramifications for choosing that date. And I will pretty much tell you, anybody that chooses that date, it does not align with what Scripture says. And then the next thing that drops is, your Old Testament account is no longer reliable. Does that bother anybody to have an account from Scripture that's not reliable? It should bother you. And this is where a lot of people are. This is, this is so commonly taught. And so we're going to talk about this battle at Jericho. We're going to talk about the battle that happened at Ai or I. And they're going to have a defeat, and then they're going to have a victory. And I, I, you know, we're going to take some time to dig into, uh, dig into, no pun intended, a little bit of the archaeology. Um, really, was no pun intended. Um, just to address this issue. Because it is like almost a foregone conclusion. Um, if you, as you read so many magazines and articles and hear people talk that um, the conquest, well, the exodus and the conquest were not real events of history. And if they did, I don't know, maybe a few thousand wandered out of, um, wandered out of Egypt, eventually made their way up into Israel and no big deal. But, you know, as time went on, they're like, wow, we need to come up with a story. And so they... They fabricated a story, and they wrote these things. And, and they're like, well, that, that's what they did. Well, that's called a lie. And this is scripture. And so um, we're going to take the time to uh, look at these things. Um, you, in your brochure, you'll have a little bit of information there. So it isn't simply to just talk about archaeology. It's to show you that um, there is plenty of evidence. There's a mountain of evidence that is out there that shows that these things were happening at this particular time. So we will get into that. By the way, side note, um, I've reached out, and and it's not certain yet, but we're like about a year away, and um, it looks like we're going to be able to get the group that has done the digs at at I. They've found the curse tablet, and they've done a bunch of other work um, that they're going to be here, and we're going to have a, a conference with them. So I'm, we're working on that. I think it's going to be very exciting to do that. So um, we'll get to t- hear from the people that have actually dug it up. I don't know if they bring the artifacts, but I'll pay extra if they bring them. So um, don't you think? I mean, I, I want to see them. So uh, that's something that's just going on. So let's get into chapter 5. Israel prepares spiritually before they prepare militarily. That's important, isn't it? There's a physical side to what they're going to do. But before they do that, chapter 5, verse 1. So it was when all the kings of Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord, that is Yahweh, had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. You have millions of people crossing into the land. And a lot of these towns are just, are just little towns. I mean, they got, you know, 12,000, 10,000, 25,000. You have millions of people that just crossed over. If it's 5,000 people, why are their hearts melting? They're not going to melt over that. 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again a second time. So he did this. So Joshua did this. And as you read on down, you find that they had not been circumcised while they were walking in the wilderness for those 40 years. They did when they came out of Egypt. But now 40 years later, none of them had been circumcised. And this was a part of the covenant that God had made with, Israel, with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 11, God said, Abraham, I've given you this promise. And then as a sign of this prom- promise, you will mark your bodies. You will be circumcised. And this will remind you that you are in a covenant with me. So circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And um, you'll notice in verse 8 that, um, that it's connected with um, the land. It says, also, I give to your, you and your descendants. I'm reading in Genesis 17, verse 8. And also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's all found in that same passage. You're going to have the land where entering into a covenant and circumcise yourself. So the occasion of them entering into the land is a good time to come back and say, what have we failed to do here? But as we made our way through Deuteronomy, we saw that the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, um, yes, it, it cut their skin of their body. But really, Deuteronomy 10, 16, it was to signify something deeper. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That's what he wanted. He wanted their their heart and that fleshy, carnal way of of humanity to be cut away and be totally committed. In Colossians 2, 11 through 14, we find in the new covenant, which we are under, is that um, the circumcision is one that is made without hands. So we have receive that spiritual circumcision, that cutting away of our heart and entering into that relationship with the Lord. But it it signifies this, um, you know, spiritually the same thing. We are to be dedicated to the Lord. We're not to be after the flesh. We're to be people that are dedicated to the Lord. This is a really good reminder for them. As they get ready to go into the land, you're different people. You're a people of covenant. You're a people, I've promised to give you the land You're going to receive this land, but make certain that your heart is right. And not only do they uh, walk through the rite of circumcision, in verse 9, well, not verse 9, if you back up a little bit more, you're going to see that they are, yeah, okay, at verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal till uh, this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So they are entering into the promised land at springtime. That's why we read earlier that the Jordan River was at flood season. The banks were overgoing, overflowing. We're also going to read um, and see, well, we're going to find archaeologically they found all kinds of grain that had been stored up. So again, it matches the time of year. But what's interesting here, um, the reproach has been rolled away. So they they are circumcised. The time in Egypt is rolled away. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept Passover on the 14th day. So two things. They are having circumcision that's being done, and they are then taking Passover. Because in Exodus 12, verses 44 through 48, it tells you that you had to be circumcised in order to take Passover. So... Verse 47, specifically, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come, in, come near and keep it. Well, if that's true for the stranger, how much more for those with whom aren't strangers, that they would be circumcised? So why all this conversation? I, I just, I, you know, I think it's, I find um, a lot of encouragement in just piecing Scripture together. And it's like, what's happening here is because of what happened in Genesis and also because of what happened in the Exodus. And it's what we find is um, a consistent theme. So this is why they are engaging. It's interesting to me that their reproach is rolled away at the same time they're experiencing 
the circumcision, a sign of the covenant, and taking Passover. Because truly, if you look at the, the counterparts under the new covenant, our hearts being um, cut without hands, that is, we are being brought into the kingdom of God, and Jesus is our Passover, and isn't it there where it took place at the cross that our reproach is rolled away? If reproach is rolled away and it's called Gilgal in the Old Testament, then it's called Calvary in the New Testament for us. Because that is where your sin is taken away. That's where Egypt and the stain of how you used to live, the, you know, the shame that's brought on, because of the things you did when you're outside of Christ. Uh, it's, it's there where his blood was shed that we find that the reproach and the shame has been rolled away. And let me just say this. If you are in Christ Jesus, then the shame has been rolled away. Far more than even what they experienced. These things are a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Jesus himself has circumcised your heart. He is the Passover lamb, and we come to him, and that reproach is rolled away. I won't ask for a show of hands, because I probably wouldn't get any ways on this. On this. If you're dealing with the shame of your past, I don't need to ask if you show your hands. I know people out there are feeling that. But yeah, you're in Christ Jesus. You are under the blood of the lamb. You've received Christ. He is your Passover, and he has taken away that shame. But so many believers continue to live in the guilt and the shame of what is already under the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's like, well, I just, I messed up so badly. I just, I'll never be able to forgive myself. I want you to hear something. To not be able to let that go is to think little of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. You, we, you, me, we do not honor the Lord by moping around for our past failures that are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't honor Christ. What honors Christ is that, yes, there is a time of repentance and brokenness and we lay it down, but then we get up. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But then we get up and we walk on. Why? Because of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of great words in there, but one that always stands out to me is the second to last word, all. All of it. And so you're clean if you're in Christ Jesus. The shame has been rolled away. So you're like, well, that's not for me, okay? But I bet it's for somebody you know. And so make certain that you don't keep the shame on those whom the Lord has rolled away the shame. Make certain that you don't keep bringing up their past failures when they have repented and they've asked for forgiveness. Hey, if the Lord can let it go, you need to let it go. I need to let it go. We are not more righteous and holy than the Lord. The offense against the Lord is multiple times over greater than the offense against you, no matter how egregious or even criminal it may have been. If the Lord can forgive me, if the Lord can forgive her, if the Lord can forgive him, then who am I to not forgive the one who rolled away the shame? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The Lord does not condemn us. And so don't you condemn one that the Lord does not condemn because they're under the blood of Christ. Well, we keep on reading back there in Joshua chapter 7. And we come to an interesting verse, um, and not seven, six, five. I'm sorry, I got too far ahead. I, I turned the page. Look at verse 12. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So for 40 years, every morning, except on the Sabbath, they would wake up, and there would be manna. There would be a bread-like substance on the ground. That's a, that is a miracle of, of miracles. And it sustained them. It was, you know, man does not live by bread alone. That's the context. You know, you don't need a bakery. I will 
provide for you what you need. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. What's the word? Every morning when you wake up, I will provide manna for you. That's the word. You don't need to smell the, you know, the bakery. You don't need to smell it cooking because I'm going to deliver it to you every single morning. You don't live by bread alone, but by the word. I told you I'm going to bring it. And he brought it every single day for 40 years. And now it has ceased because they are now going to enter into a different provision of the Lord. And that is going to be the provision of a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to have those things that they need. They needed this when they were in the wilderness for spiritual reasons, but for very practical reasons. But now it's over. They're not going to be eating that food any longer. So this is all the preparation, right? All of this is preparation. Now, verses 13 through 15 Joshua meets the pre-incarnate Christ. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So um, he's calling him Lord. He is worshipping him. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Reminds us of the encounter of Moses at the burning bush, doesn't it? It, it reads so similar. And he meets the Lord. But, but here, he's not ha- having simply a theophany like Moses did, where he saw the presence of the Lord in a burning bush, and he encountered the presence of the Lord. But here is what you would call a Christophany, where you have a physical bodily manifestation of the Godhead. Now, some will say, that, you know, the father could do this as well. And I guess in one sense he could. I guess the question that I would ask is, does he? It seems like it is the second person of the Godhead. The Logos, Christ, is the one who takes on the physical manifestation. So there are these manifestations of the second person of the Godhead in the Old Testament. And if you ask me, how do I know that this is that case? Um, well, he said, Joshua worships him. This is not an angel. In the book of Revelation, when John bows down to worship the angels, what do they say? Don't do that. (laughs) Stop that. Um, Ezekiel is told to stop that. But here, they're not stopped. Joshua is not stopped. As a matter of fact, it goes even further. He's worshiping him. He says, yes, you got it right. Um, But you need to take your sandal off too. You need to worship me. You need to reverence this place. You need to understand that I am holy and I want you to reverence me in this manner. And so what an encounter he has. I love, I love the, the answer. He says, who are you for? He says, no. It's like, you can be on my team, but I, I'm, you, you know, I'm not signing up for your team. You can sign up for my team. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm not for, against them and for you. I am God. And so you can, you can follow me into this battle if you like. And so um, it's a very appropriate that the Lord uh, comes and appears as the, the commander of the Lord's army because battle is about to begin for um, many decades to come. And so he encounters this one. So very, very interesting scene here. Um, so the long-awaited time of judgment has come. Genesis 15, 16, God said he was going to give time for the Amorites to repent. And he did, 400 years, and they did not repent. And now the Lord has shown up. This is not, you know, one ethnic group of people going to wipe out another ethnic group of people. And if you read the conquest that way, it's very problematic in our heart and our mind. What you need to see the conquest is, is God saying, after 400 years, you will now be judged for your sin. And people have a hard time with that, but they have a hard time with any kind of judgment. They have a hard time with the great flood. 
They have a hard time with the second return of Christ to judge this earth. They have a hard time with there being a literal hell because people don't like the idea that God judges. This is nothing new. I mean, this is a consistent problem that humanity has. Um, So the Lord is showing up, though. It's time for the Amorites. That would be those in Jericho, those in Ai, those, you know, in Hatzar, and all the other uh, lands. They're going to be judged for their iniquity. And, and the Lord is the one that's bringing the judgment. So it's appropriate that he shows up um, ready to do battle and ready to bring judgment. I think as we leave this chapter 5, um, spiritual concerns are more important than military preparations. And, and we are a people of faith. Now listen, there comes a time to, to count your army and know if you're ready to go to battle. Jesus talked about this. There's a place to know if you have enough um, resources to finish building what you're going to start, right? He talks about stewardship. So it's not that you're not a steward of it, but if all the focus lies upon what you have at your disposal and you're not preparing your heart spiritually, it's not going to end well. And we'll see a picture of that. So we move on into chapter six, and here we're going to see the victory at Jericho. Verses one, verse 1, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around. So here's the battle plan. The commander's talking to him. This is how we're going to fight this one. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once, then you shall, this you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and it shall come to pass. And you can almost see Joshua leaning over, writing it down, right? Okay, six times, that's easy. Seven times, the seventh day, got that. Ram's horns, seven of them, seven priests. All right, got all that. And what's going to happen? Um, do, do we then fire the arrows? Do, do, what do we do next? Well, when that happens, you should shout real loud. Okay, we're excited about this too. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So we're, that's it? I mean, that's how the walls are going to come down? Now think about this. Let's go back to Kadesh Barnea. When they rebel against God 40 years earlier and they don't want to go into the land, they say that there are giants in the lands and that they have walled cities that are up to what? Are up to the heavens. They're giant walled cities. We, we can't do this. And so the Lord speaks to them and says, you know those walls you were so worried about? I'm just going to knock them down. You just yell real loud. You march around like I tell you to, and I will bring the walls down for you. The very, I mean, you think about that. And, you know, the crowd that didn't go in to learn of how the walls came down and that that was part of the reason why they didn't want to go in. Man, talk about whiffing, right? I mean, just missing the opportunity to follow the Lord. Now, <laughs> this is certainly not a conventional way to go and fight. But Proverbs 16:9 tells us, a man's heart, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Step. So, you know, we we need to know that you can have all the plans you want, but ultimately we follow the Lord. And so often the plans that the that we have, they're not exactly how the Lord's going to do it. He's going to do it differently. Can anybody give testimony to that? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about all kinds of scenarios in my life of how that has been the case. We need to learn to trust the leading of the Lord and to cling to it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So follow the Lord. Prepare your heart spiritually. And then listen to his battle plan. And it doesn't matter if it sounds ridiculous. If you got it from the Lord, you follow it. And you trust in him with not part of your heart, but completely and totally. 
So in verses 6 through 19, Joshua instructs Israel on exactly what he had just received. And there are a couple of added provisions. If you look at verse 17, it says, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are within her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. So that's number one. You got to protect her because we said we would protect her. Number two, and you shall by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20, so the, pe- when the pe- so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua said to the uh, two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all she had. So they brought out all her relatives and she was, must have been doing some evangelizing, huh? Obviously, the good news is, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the good news was there's salvation in this house. If we wait for them to come, there's salvation. And so they had become believers. Um, It wasn't just her. Verse 24, but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver, gold, and the vessels of bronze and iron, they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, of course, at the time of the writing, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn And with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. So this is a pretty fantastic, miraculous account of the first victory. And there is ample, there's so much archaeological evidence for this event. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of slides here in just a moment. But again, the time frame We're right around 1406 B.C. because the exodus happened in 1446. It's 40 years later after wandering. They're now making their way in. So we're right at that time frame. But and and this was a, a pretty, you know, widely held belief. And, um, when the first archaeologist came, um, Garsteng was his name and he came in the thirties, 1930. And when he did discovery here, He looked at the evidence, he looked at the pottery, he looked at everything that he said, and he says, this is ancient Jericho, and this was destroyed at late Bronze Age, around 1400 BC. That was his conclusion. But then, in 1950, a lady by the name Kathleen Kenyon, whose work has had such a profound negative impact upon um, belief in the truth of Scripture... She looked at this and she said, no, uh, this is not the case. This was um, destroyed um, in, uh, 12, you know, at, a, in, at a later time. And Israel didn't come in until 1250. Um, so when they arrived at 1250 BC, which would have been about you know, 150 years later, um, this city was already destroyed. Now she agrees that when it was destroyed, the time, but she doesn't believe that the exodus happened when it says, so she says they got here too late, but everything else they found. So, and then from that point forward in the fifties, people began to have a different perspective. So look at this first slide. And actually it might even be in your brochure. I don't know. Let's see here. Yeah, it is in your brochure. So are close to it. Something that looks very similar. 
So this is actually an aerial photograph of modern uh, Jericho, but you have this tell site or this archaeological site, and they've they've put a they've superimposed a digital graphic on top of the very spot. Um, in your brochure, if you don't have one, look at your neighbors. You can actually see it without um, that. So that that's what it looks like today. Some of you have been there. Um, uh, we've gone there. And you can actually see that spot. That is ancient Jericho. Um, so, but what's interesting about this is as you look at this, you can see that um, there's two walls. There's two kind of dwelling areas. You have the top area where most of the population would have been. Um, and you have a wall around it. Then you have like a terrace level um, living. Um, and it's much narrower that goes around the city. And you have another wall. And that second wall is built on top of a retaining wall. All right. So you can imagine retaining wall, you know, then you have a, you know, a fortress wall and then you have another fortress wall. So if you're on the outside and you're looking up this, I mean, this is a, this is imposing. This is something that would have been troubling. Um, the next slide that you'll see is a, it kind of shows you that same kind of picture. You have the white stone that's a retaining wall. You have the, the, uh, the red bricks, the mud bricks um, of that first level. And what you see is uh, just an artist's rendition of a portion of those walls coming down. And this is the idea that's picked up in your text as you read it. And the walls fell down flat and every man ran up. So as the walls fell down, Think of it this way. When you read this, the walls fell down flat. What does that mean? God gave them a siege ramp for them to run up into the city and to actually be able to have victory. Now, we know that this happened at the time of harvest, in the springtime, when they would have been out. And this is an area to this day that still has a lot of agriculture. But this would have been a time where they would have been out there bringing in all of the grain and so forth. And, when a, and then we read that the city was sealed up shut. So they're in siege mode, right? Everything is locked down. Nobody's going in, nobody's going out. But lucky for Jericho, it's harvest time, so they have plenty of grain. And so we can wait them out. You know, this is the idea, right? If you have a walled city, you can wait them out. And, and, and then we'll be all right, because this can maybe go on for weeks or months or years, but we, we have the supplies. Um, but how long does this siege last? Does anybody know how long the siege lasts? Seven days. That's pretty short. And what they found as they began to do this dig, both Garcing, and I don't know if it was Kathleen Kenyon that found this or is Garcing that found this, but this next slide shows you that where they digged, they found all of these jars and and they said that they found vast quantities of these uh, jars, clay pots. And guess what they were filled with? Grain. And they were charred. It was burnt. And this is what happened. They set the city on fire. So um, they didn't have time to go through their food. And the food was left there because the Lord told them to not take of the accursed thing. And it was also burnt. They found pottery that dates. Now, for us, like for them, to find a coin would be really helpful because that really locks in a time frame. Um, but what they've done over the years is as they find pottery, because that's, that's a, a common um, artifact that's left behind, often mostly broken. But as the archaeologists go around, they have taken the time with every... Um, you know, piece and uh, shard of pottery and they put it into this database and over time they've built a very reliable, reliable database that when you find pottery that looks like this, you're in this time period. Well, they found all kinds of pottery and the pottery that they found fits to the 1400 BC and they also found a huge ash layer, like three feet thick. Um, and I'll read to you, um, this is Kenyon's description. The destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire. And every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. 
but the collapse of the walls of the eastern rooms seemed to have taken place before they were affected by the fire. So she's writing this down. Now, people have so, they've dismissed, you know, this idea, but there, there was an individual, um, a Bible-believing man by the name Bryant Wood, who um, has studied this and has taken the time, and there is so much great material out there you can find, and uh, I, maybe I'll just post it somewhere where you guys can um, go out there and find it, but he has said that they have found all of the evidence they need to make it conclusive that it happened at this time, just as it was said. They found portions of the wall that did not collapse, which would make sense how Rahab could have survived. And that these were homes that were on the wall, which makes sense because this is how the spies were let down. Um, so there is so much information that's around. Let me read you, uh, and I have this quote up there. And it says, and this is from uh, Bryant Wood, and it's a Bible and Spade um, archaeological magazine. It says, as a final note, even archaeological evidence from the conquest city of Jericho indicates an early date destruction during LB1, long, uh, late Bronze 1. This date can be established because of the date and position of the fallen walls of Jericho, the types of pottery found in the city ruins, and the presence of chronologically significant Egyptian artifacts. And so they found all of these things that date it. So they have multiple uh, pieces of evidence that are all putting it to this time. I, I know this is a, taking a lot of time, but the thing that concerns me is that there are those that just, they dismiss this, and then when the, it's, it becomes like a domino. If you say this isn't true, then you're, everything begins to unravel on you. And now you don't have confidence in the, the book that you're, you're reading and, and it's telling you about your Savior, Jesus. And if it's not right here, then how can it be right there? So this is quite significant. The, before we leave this chapter, verses uh, 26 and 27, talks about a curse if this city should ever be rebuilt. And it gets pretty specific. I mean, it's like his, he's going to lose his firstborn when he lays the foundation. And then his next child, his youngest, is going to die when he puts up the gates. 1 Kings 16, 34. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gate at the cost of his youngest son, Segev, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. The Bible is so precise. And so he did this, and, um, but to this day, Nobody's rebuilt it. Again, look in the brochure, you'll see. Now you can find a, a later Jericho, and they built another Jericho, but they didn't build it on the location of ancient Jericho, Joshua's Jericho. So we can trust the word of the Lord. Now, as you move into chapter 7, um, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Like, wow, the city came tumbling down. Um, they sing something like, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and, or something like that. I don't know if it began then, but they're excited. They're feeling really good about themselves. We begin chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass according to the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't worry all the people for, there are, for the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabiram, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. They are freaked out. Joshua tore his clothes. 
and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Oh, that we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Now, all of us, when we read this for the first time, we are so disappointed (laughs) in Joshua. Because he's been like this solid guy through the whole way. But now he's saying things that sound very familiar to the wilderness generation. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? And I love this verse. I hope every one of you underlines this verse. So the Lord said to Joshua, what does he say? Two words. What does he say? Get up. Now, how did he say it? Oh, get up. I don't think he said it like that. I think he said it like, get up. What, what are you doing? You are wallowing in your defeat. Stand up, man. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And who did they steal from? God. They have stolen from the Lord, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have come, become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with, any, uh, with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. And he says it again, get up, get up, go sanctify Yourself. Get these people ready. And so they do this. And the Lord says, I'm gonna, we're going to figure this out. And what ends up happening is they bring all of the tribes, and then it comes to one particular tribe, and then it comes to one clan, and then it comes to one family, and they break it down. And eventually, and you can see this, you know, at verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18, um, it's the tribe of Judah. And now verse 19, now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, they found it, and then he, verse 24, and all of his family is put to death. And so it's a a severe punishment, Um, but the Lord warned. And you, you contrast this, to circumcise yourself, sanctify yourself, have Passover. You're standing on holy ground. Take your sandals off, and they go out, and they have victory. But sin happens in that Jericho, in the, this money and these clothing, this garment is taken. And it ends up displeasing the Lord. So when they go out to fight a much lesser city, a much smaller location, um, and I think it's like Jericho's like nine acres, and I, the, the site that they've discovered is two to three acres. So it's much smaller. And, uh, and maybe just a fortress city at that, not even a full blown city, but just kind of like a, an outpost, a fortress city. And um, so they, they suffer defeat. They, did, they should have sought the Lord, they should have taken some time. Lord, what do you want? But they're feeling good about themselves, they're feeling confident. And we just go out to battle and we win. Boom, automatic. But they didn't take the time to seek the Lord. I, th- I really believe that if he would have taken time to have si- sought the Lord, he would have said, no, don't go. This is so reminiscent of what happened when the children of Israel came out of, the, out of Egypt and the Exodus. And now they're setting up the tabernacle. And early on in the tabernacle worship, The sons of Aaron go in to worship before the Lord. And the Lord had told them, don't bring profane fire, unholy fire before me. And his sons, 
Nadab and Abihu, they go in before the presence of the Lord and they offer before him profane fire and the fire comes out and devours them and kills them. And it's the shocking moment. Um, this is also kind of reminds us moving forward to think about in the book of Acts and Ananias and Sapphira and how they're at the beginning of the work of the church being established. They, they lie about their generosity. They're not obligated to give a dime, but they lie about their, their generosity, which is to play the hypocrite. And again, hypocrisy is pretending to be one thing when you're another. Hypocrisy is not falling in sin and repenting, <laughs> okay? That's what we all do. Hypocrisy is when you fall in sin, but you act like you got it all together and you condemn other people. Well, this is what uh, Ananias and Sapphira do. And they, they drop down dead. Just boom, dead. Why'd you, you know, come up with this plan to lie against the Holy Spirit? Your husband died and now you're going to die. And they were carried out and they were buried. So you have these moments, and this is not all the only place you can look in Scripture, but you have these, those you know, three moments, if you count Achan, where the Lord makes a strong statement at the beginning of a, a work, a new season, a new episode in the life of his people, where he says, I want you to be holy. I want you to be circumcised, not just in your body, but I want you to be circumcised in your heart. And so... He pays dearly for this. Now, the gold and the silver, he stole that from God because that was to go to the tabernacle. The Babylonian garment was uh, the other thing that he took. And um, he sins, and he, he and his whole family. It's like, well, why his family? Well, God is just. I don't, we don't have the exact answer. But I'm just thinking it's very hard to dig a hole in your tent without everybody in your tent knowing it. They all were complicit. They all knew what was going on. I think that's a, the, the text doesn't say that, but that's a very easy conclusion. What are you, why, why are you digging a hole? Hey, look at this silver and gold I got. You're not allowed to have it. And they went along with it. That, that would be my take on why they suffered the consequences as well. Well, we talked a little bit about the archaeology of Jericho and, and how um, it is... Um, really been established, not in the minds of many, mind you, but um, there's plenty of evidence to show that this was destroyed by Joshua. Um, now, when you come to um, the city of Ai, um, this has become, this is, I mean, Jericho's not really debated as the location, but when it comes to Ai, there's all kinds of trouble around it. In the 1920s, kind of the father of archaeology, uh, Dr. William Albright, um, said that there was only one possible site that would work for I, and it was called Et-Tel. So E-T and then T-E-L, Et-Tel. And he says, that's the only one that it could be. And so he kind of came to the conclusion because nothing else seemed to make sense. Not a really good way to come to a conclusion, but highly regarded and respected. And so that is what was believed. Well, when they began to do archaeological evidence at this site, up to this day, they have never found anything of significance that matches what we read in the text about the city of Ai. And so um, it has led others, another gentleman by the name of Joseph Calloway in the 1960s, as he did some work there, he famously stated, and I'm not quoting it directly, but he famously stated, well, once again, the Bible has failed us when it comes to matters of geography and it cannot be trusted. So then Bryant Wood, who I've already mentioned, um, the ceramic expert there at Jericho, um, Bible-believing evangelical says, there's got to be something else out there. So they began to uh, do this work. And so for the last 40 years, they just finished. They just finished all of their study here at another alternate site that is only six-tenths of a mile away from Etel, where they said it had to be. So I think it's even on the same mountain ridge. Um, and, and so they found this, they saw this other site. Well, they began to find, they, they checked one site, they spent, I think, 10 years, and it was no, they came to this other site. And, and now they're just now releasing all of the documentation for this. So this is all pretty, pretty fresh um, information that's coming out. 
But at this other location, which is called Kerbert L. Mocketeer, so K H I R I B I T E L Mocketeer, M A Q A T I R. So they, they went to this site, and as they got to this site, they began to find all kinds of stuff. And, um, and so we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit about that. But if we put up that, um, that slide um, that shows a picture of ice. So they've, they've found walls, they've found gates. And so based upon the size of the walls and the gates, um, you can see um, this is uh, still a fortified city, much smaller than Jericho. Um, but they estimate from the walls that they found here, which were 13 feet wide, knowing how they built, it would have been walls about 40 to 50 feet high. So this is a little city that they found that they said, just give us 3,000 and we can do business. So we move into chapter eight. So they've repented, they've found out what the, is going on and why they were defeated. So the Lord says, chapter eight, verse one, and this is the last chapter we're gonna study. Uh, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. You're taking everybody. Not 3,000. Everybody's going. And arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai, his people in the city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only as spoil and cattle, its cattle, you shall take as booty for yourselves. O Achan, if you would have just waited. You just, you jumped the gun. Did you think, Achan, that God was going to keep the blessings from you? Did you not know your God well enough, his character enough, to know that he was bringing you into a land of promise, not to bring you into a land of hardship? That you couldn't trust him after 40 years of eating manna? And everything else that you saw, you couldn't trust God after hearing in Deuteronomy, you know, 28, 27, 28, and 29, all the curses that come, you couldn't wait. You had to take that stuff. You couldn't have been obedient to the Lord because had you been obedient to the Lord and just a few short days later, you could have filled your tent up rather than hid stuff in your tent. And boy, isn't there a lesson for us in that? We're tempted we see things. And he admits, I mean, I coveted. I wanted that silver and gold and that Babylonian garment. Man, it was, I was going to look good in it. But my question is, when would have you wore it, Aiken? When would have you wore that thing? When would have you put it on? Because everybody would have said, hey, where did you get that? I mean, it's not like, you know, you just, oh, I ordered it. Or, you know, I went to the store. No, where did you get that? We've been out in the wilderness for 40 years. Where did you get that? And, and so... He's, you know, he gets caught up in temptation and lust and covetousness. Not trusting. Not trusting that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The good stuff comes from God. The dollar store junk, sorry, dollar store, I don't really mean it. I mean, just cheap store junk, whatever. Listen, that's junk. Don't, don't go for the junk. Wait for the Lord to give you the good stuff. And when we're tempted... And we, we follow after things that we're not supposed to touch. You're not getting the good stuff. You're getting the cheap stuff that's going to break on you. So if he would have just waited, he could have, he could have enjoyed. Um, do you think he enjoyed the stuff buried in his tent? I mean, you know how it works. I mean, when you sin and you have something, immediately when you begin to do that, your thought is, how do I cover this up? You don't enjoy it. You become panicked over it. You become troubled by it. You wonder how to undo what you did. But if he would have just waited, not only could have he filled his tent up, he could have had a blast with it. He could have really enjoyed it. So, well, he doesn't get to do that. And so the Lord says, you're going you're gonna to have plenty. Um, don't worry about it. I, I want to uh, pick up here at verse 9. They're going to set an ambush for, for the people. Um, and I want you to pay attention to some of these details. I mean, it gives directions. It gives, some, it gives a lot of geographical details. Joshua, therefore, verse 9, sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai. All right, so you have Ai and Bethel. They stayed between them. On the west side of Ai. 
But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. So here we are. And the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city. Joshua went that night in the midst of the valleys. This is an ambush, all right? So they got on the west side, they're hiding people. But they're going to pop out in front on the north side and say, hey, here we are again. Want to fight? Um, but the, the larger part of the army is going to be there um, in, uh, on the north. They're going to have this, this other location. But there's going to be this, this little valley between them on the north. So again, they can hide a little bit. Um, so this is, this is kind of the ambush. Verse 14. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it. That the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if their head, they were beaten before them, and they fled the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel. So they joined forces here for this one who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And as Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So in those in the ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them and saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven, so they had no power to flee this way or that way. They're trapped. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers, turned back on the, the army of Ai. Now Joshua and all Israel saw the, uh, that the ambush had taken, and that the city, and that the smoke of the city ascended, and they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought to him to Joshua. So they, lots of geographical details. So one of the things that was a problem at the Etel site for being Ai was that it didn't match any of the geography. But this is, um, uh, I'm getting this from Associates for Biblical Research. Um, I did not do this drone work myself. Um, so glad to recommend you to read them and follow their stuff. But if you put up this next slide, you, you'll get an aerial picture. So on the left side, you have Kerbert El Makhater, or Ancient Eye. And then on the right side, if you can just follow that, you can see how it drops off. This is going to the west. As you go to the right, it's going to the west. You're going towards Bethel. Okay, so as it comes, it drops off into this valley. Can you see that on the picture? A perfect place to hide a bunch of troops. Because if you're at um, I, you can't see the troops that are down in the valley. And so I'm, if you're looking at the photo, you're north, okay? You are the northern part. And this is where uh, they were to show themselves and another part of the army would be. If you go to the next slide, um, now you're looking south. You're looking, if you will, from I, uh, you're looking northward now. Okay. Hopefully you can follow that. And as you look at this, you can tell it, there's like, there's a little valley that drops down and then there's a huge rise that happens in the back. The thought is, is that they just were down in that little swell, something that on 40 or 50 foot high walls, they could have seen them. They went down after them, but you had this larger thing. And so as they went out, then the guys that were there in Wadi Shaban, that little, you know, uh, uh, valley on the, uh, just to the west of the city, they came out. And I was listening today, if you go back to that other slide, I was listening today um, to, the, to uh, Scott Stripling, who did a lot of the work there. And he said that he put people down in that uh, valley 
um, that little wadi, Dry Creek. And he said he had them stay there. They walked back up to the city. And at a certain time, they were supposed to leave. And it took them just under six minutes to get from there to the city. So it shows you that, you know, it fits in so many ways. But it's not just that. Um, they did find a walled city there. They did find um, artifacts. They found, you know, these scarabs, if you know what, I'm, what that is. It's a little piece of jewelry um, that matches to the time they found pottery. They found burnt um, stuff. They found all kinds of, um, you know, sling balls about this big that showed, in, you know, an attack that would have taken place. They found all kinds of things. They found the ancient, ancient gate where, um, as we continue to read, we'll find out that that's exactly where the king of Ai went. So all kinds of evidence, once again, they've just completed this, and they're releasing all the data right now, and there's books you can buy on it. So that's what happens. Now, they get to take the spoil, right? They, they've done all this, and they've gone in, and now they are able to take the spoil of what was left behind, something that Achan missed out on. Um, look at verse 27. Only the livestock and the spoil of this city Israel took as booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And they found the gate exactly where that took place. And then we'll just wrap it up real quickly here, something that we've already talked about, so no need to spend a lot of time. But in the verses 30 down to verse 35, they journey from here and they go to Mount Ebal. And we took a lot of time a couple of weeks ago in the end of Deuteronomy to talk about Mount Ebal, where the, the curses were pronounced. And um, let's just read a few verses here. Verse 30, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whose stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, and there were in the presence of the children of Israel. Um, uh, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And then it goes on to talk about how they shouted these things, the blessings and the cursings down. But Mount Ebal was the place where the curses were shouted. And, and so um, this next slide shows you, um, this is a slide of Mount Ebal. And that little stone structure, you can see that is um, the altar. Um, by the way, there is only an altar on the curse site. There is not an altar on Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing. Why is that? Because it's only when you sin that you need sacrifice, right? So it's just kind of this interesting picture. Now, that, that structure that you see there, that is um, built over uh, the altar that Joshua made. And so if you go to the next slide, you can see just a kind of a, how it works. So that structure um, that's all in white, you can see that that's the one we were just looking at the picture of. But in the center, there's a round altar. And they have found that round altar there on Mount Ebal. And as they dug there, that is where they found that cursed tablet that dates and has the earliest mention of the name Yahweh. We spent a lot of time. I'm not going into that again. Don't worry. But um, this is, again, the archaeology where they say things happened, even to the details of the west and hide them there and to the north. And there's be a little place where you can um, hide out. I mean, all of these details are found there. So. They are, they're making their way. They have had, they've now conquered Ai. They have now conquered Jericho. They've come into the, more into the interior of the country, um, in the center part of the country, and they are making this um, pronouncement of we need to make certain that we follow and obey the Lord, which um, understanding what happened at Ai makes the scene at Mount Ebal, all the more significant because everybody just realized, everybody just a few days ago realized if we don't obey and we touch the accursed stuff, we get cursed. And so it was a powerful lesson for them. Um, will they remember it? Mm, here and there. 
kind of like us, kind of like us. So um, they write a copy of the law on, on the altar and um, on the stones of the altar. And they actually found the stones that they could have wrote that on as well. So all kinds of fascinating stuff. We are called to follow the Lord. And as we call out, follow the Lord, his plans may not be our plans. But we follow the directed steps. And so we, st- we walk by faith. I is an example to obey lest we grieve him and suffer the consequences of painful defeat. Sin grieves God. Sin in our life makes God have to deal with the sin in our life. When we do fail and we repent, God does not want us to lie in defeat. He's going to get us up. He's going to clean us up. He's going to give us fresh directions. And he's going to send us right back to where we failed. And he's going to give victory. Because that is our God. He is a God of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these accounts that tell us of how you worked and, and how you moved. And there may be ancient battles of ancient cities that are hard to pronounce and artifacts that are hard for our untrained eyes to make sense of. But Lord, we get what it is to, to sin in secret and for it to bring consequences upon a family. Lord, we get, it, we get what it means to walk by faith and to trust you. We know what it's like to try and go off on our own and, and do it our way. So, Lord, powerful lessons for us on, on how we can walk. And we are so grateful, Lord, for Calvary, our Gilgal, where the reproach is removed, where our Passover lamb was slain, that we might be clean, that the reproach and the shame of our sin is taken away. Thank you, Lord, for these pictures. But even more than that, Thank you for the reality that we get to experience in our own heart and our own life. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we close here, let's stand. We close with this song. We'll be up in front to pray. If you have something hidden, don't hide it any longer. You bring it before the Lord. Get it out. Be done with it. Walk away from it. That you don't have to suffer humiliating defeat. Because God gives us a space to repent. And if you don't make use of the space, then he steps in. So you have space. Repent. Amen?